Welcome to Everything STEAM. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. As a physicist and structural engineer with Jacobs Engineering, I've made many connections with some bright individuals who are either working, studying, or self-taught and passionate about our particular topics of discussion. This episode takes us way out of the solar system to places that are really far away. Today, my guests and I are discussing exoplanets. We will touch on the key points of how they are found, what they consist of, and the possibility of life on other planets. And then towards the latter portion of this shindig, we will touch on both space policy and outreach. To help me broadcast all of this cool information, I went back to Arizona State University and found one of Skylar Grayson's colleagues. Just to jog your memory, Skylar was my guest for the Galactic Evolution episode. If you haven't heard that episode, you should definitely put that in your queue. But without further delay, let me introduce Lindsay Weiser. Lindsay grew up in the California Bay Area before moving to Maryland for her undergraduate degree at Johns Hopkins University. She started in mechanical engineering and after an internship at the Space Telescope Science Institute, she added a second major in Earth and Planetary Science. Throughout her undergrad, she also interned at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum, Aerospace Industries Association, and NASA headquarters. She helped lead a university chapter of SEDS, or the Students for the Exploration and Development of Space, and a design-build fly club. It's really cool because this club would build remote-controlled airplanes for a yearly competition. And in 2019, she was awarded the Brooks Owens Fellowship for Gender Minorities in Aerospace. And in 2020, Lindsay started her PhD at Arizona State University. She studies the compositions and climates of exoplanet atmospheres and works with data from the Hubble Space Telescope, the Spitzer Space Telescope, and the newly launched James Webb Space Telescope. On top of her research, Lindsay thinks a lot about space and science policy. She has written about planetary protection, international space governance, tracking output from space missions, and much more. She leads the U.S. Task Force for Space Policy and Advocacy through the Space Generation Advisory Council, or SGAC, which is a global network of young professionals. So, now that you've been introduced to my guest star and the topic of this podcast, we're going to head into the first segment where we will dive into the science of exoplanets. Enjoy. Lindsay and I met at a presentation based on some uh, JWST images. Uh, was it one of your professors at ASU that was was holding that public conference? Uh, no. So the the department that I am in at Arizona State University, I'm in the School of Earth and Space Exploration. They put on a, some open houses and stuff throughout the year, each year. And so this was put together by that. And uh, they wanted somebody to talk about their experiences working with JWST from an exoplanet perspective. And I'm one of the people at ASU doing that. So I was asked to help out. That's awesome. Uh, exoplanets is just a really fun word, and I'm sure it captures a lot of wonderful imagination of both the scientific and also the very interesting social perspective that we're probably not going to get into. So if you think that we're going to just talk aliens the whole time, might want to find a different podcast. But um, I think we should start out with just the really basic, simple question, Lindsay, of what is an exoplanet? So an exoplanet is essentially a planet that orbits a star that isn't our sun. And so I'm thinking about planets that are a long ways away, and we can't go to them at this point, but we can observe them. And there are thousands of them that we've already confirmed to be out there. And 
many, many more beyond that. You just said that like we can't get there, right? Uh, just to put in perspective, even like with the fastest shuttles that we have, we would take like thousands of years to, to get yeah. to anything that's close to us. Yeah, so I actually don't know, but um, from my understanding, the closest exoplanet is a few light years away, right? So that's a long <laughs> ways. That's a long ways. Right. If you're not familiar, that's how far light travels within a year at, you know, <laughs> uh, 2.998 times 10 to the 8 meters per second. So <laughs> we're not that fast yet <laughs> or maybe yeah. ever. But um, yeah, so kind of curious because this is uh, something that it, I guess is like more contested in the scientific community um, on the definition of exoplanets. Because we talked a little bit offset or before this whole recording happened was that rogue planets aren't tech like some people don't like it being involved in exoplanets. Some do. I mean, what's your thoughts on that? That's a good question. So I guess for context, the astronomy community doesn't always agree on definitions of things. A lot of people are familiar with the debate of whether or not Pluto is a planet. And so this is similar. There are bodies that are like planet size, maybe really, really big planet size that are just out on their own and they're not orbiting a star. There's some debate over whether or not that counts as an exoplanet. I think Officially now, it's been proposed that that's a sub-brown dwarf, so a sub-star in some way rather than a planet. But I don't know. I would argue that it's still a planet if it's the size of a planet. Yeah, I wouldn't argue it to be more star-like, but yeah, that's very interesting. <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, the the rogue really fits. It's kind of a, uh, a beautiful sci-fi way to put that. You know, it's a, a planet or body that's been kicked out of a solar system over time, like through its formation. Solar systems aren't that beautiful in steady state. They can be quite chaotic and over billions of years, you can end up losing lots of mass and having a lot of rogue planets or just having rogue planets come into your own solar system. There's always that possibility. And uh, I think it's more beautiful that it's chaotic. But moving on, uh, I'm curious, how do we detect these exoplanets? Because I'm sure that's really hard being that far away and that small. So Yeah, so it is definitely tricky. Um, even though, you know, logically it doesn't seem that surprising that there would be planets around other stars if there's planets around our star. We didn't actually discover any exoplanets until the 90s. So mm -hmm. it's not been very long. And so there are a few different ways we can detect them. One of the most common is the transit method. Essentially, if you are looking at a star and there's a planet orbiting that star, if the planet orbits and passes in front of the star, so it passes between your field of view and the star, then the light will just dim a little bit. And so you'll see the star flicker dimmer and then brighter again. So that's one way we can detect that something is going around it if that's happening at regular intervals. Say the planet orbits once every three weeks. If you see a dimming every three weeks, you know that there was a planet there. There's also ways to just stare at stars for a really long time. And really big planets will have a gravitational effect on their star. And so the star will actually wiggle a little bit as well. 
Um, and we can detect that wiggling of a star to detect that there's a planet there. Other methods are you can try to block out starlight using something called a coronagraph, which is essentially like putting your thumb in front of a really bright spot to be able to see the stuff around it better. And you can use that to more directly actually image the light coming from a planet. There are a number of different ways we do it. All of them require uh, high sensitivity, but we're now able to do it pretty well. That second method that you talked about, it kind of seems like uh, almost a Doppler effect where you have like a dance in the sky, you know, with the Mm -hmm. star and whatever is revolving around it. And just also we have to take into account the possibility of complexity in these star systems because you're going to have more than just one body rotating around the star. So essentially to be able to detect a system that has more than just one rotating body, you have to stare at that star for a long time and figure out its intervals so you can understand how many bodies potentially are there. And you can also use either the first method or the second method. You can pay attention to the Doppler effect, which is just the wobbling, or you can look at its luminosity, how much dimmer the star gets as these bodies rotate in front of it. It is simple, but it can also be complex and time-consuming. Yeah, I mean, like you were hinting at, you know, when you have multiple planets around a star, uh, it becomes a little bit more complicated for all these methods because if you see some sort of transit happening, there's a dimming of the star, and then it happens again a week later, but then it doesn't happen for, say, a few months that's no longer a regular interval. And that could be because there's actually multiple planets doing the transiting with different orbital periods. So yeah, it it could be a fun puzzle for some of those more complex systems. What are you using to be able to look at the luminosity or the Doppler effect, the wobble of a star? So to look at exoplanets, um, we use space telescopes, ground-based telescopes, kind of the whole gamut of telescopes. Um, But ones that people may be most familiar with are the Hubble Space Telescope, uh, the Spitzer Space Telescope, now JWST. Mm -hmm. And then there have been some more dedicated programs specifically for detecting exoplanets. So Kepler, for example, had the K2 mission, which is essentially they tacked on an extra number of years after Kepler's, Kepler's primary mission to just kind of dedicate time to searching for exoplanets. Nice. Uh, and TESS, TESS is a smaller uh, mission than these big telescopes that we build, but it's also intended to just do a sweep of the sky and uh, detect a bunch of planets that then we can follow up with other more specific instruments. So interesting. So uh, just for my curiosity, maybe other people are wondering too, what portion of the EM spectrum are we taking advantage of whenever we're looking for these exoplanets? So it can be all over, but I would say that um, a lot of the area we're looking at for exoplanets is going to be the near infrared, some of the UV. And so, yeah, the areas I've mostly been looking at are in the near infrared. Do you mind me asking why it is the near infrared? So there are some really cool features there. Some really important molecules have features in those wavelength ranges that are 
uh, interesting to detect. So things like water, methane, etc. It's also where we can start to see the planets more brightly because we're trying to separate the planet's light from the stellar light. Um, and yep. in shorter wavelengths, sometimes it's harder to separate out. So in the near infrared is where planets themselves become especially bright. Yeah, that makes sense. And especially, I mean, it's also probably a play on what type of star you're really dealing with, too. I guess one more one more question before we roll in. We talked about how we can find these planets, right? These exoplanets. But we didn't cover like how we detect their size and their density. Some of that comes from very similar methods. Using that wiggling to think about the mass, using the length between transits to think about orbits. Yeah. And how big is the dip in light? That can tell you a bit about the radius of the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a lot of very similar methods, just picking out pieces of them. And then you can get like some cool information like the density and stuff like that. That makes a bunch of sense. So another obvious question coming. How many have we found so far? I, I My understanding is we've been only doing this since the 90s. So mm-hmm. curious how many we've seen. Yeah. So, so far we have confirmed over 5,000 exoplanets. Nice. Uh, there are thousands more that have are kind of preliminary they're not confirmed yet but could possibly be detections with further with more follow-up and you know i don't know exactly how many there are out there but it's a huge number uh we're certainly at the point where we think that most stars probably have planets or at least a lot of them do uh so there's tons out there but there are about five thousand that haven't been officially confirmed i think it's it's fair to to make that statement now with all of the increasing evidence and I mean, with a galaxy that has an approximate 100 billion stars, just imagine how many planets you have in, in one galaxy with yeah. a universe filled with with galaxies, you know, in abundance. So that's very mm-hmm. exciting. And uh, I think it's really interesting. And we'll talk about it in segment two, just how they form is, is you know, in, in uh, how they form in different ways is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So I guess that would lead into what I want to talk about next before we run into our first commercial break is how like these thousands of exoplanets that we've declared as exoplanets, how are they comparing to the ones in our solar system? Yeah. Uh, So a lot of the planets we're seeing are super different from anything in our solar system. And a lot of them aren't. Things like ocean worlds, ice giants, we found those in abundance. There are a lot of those out there. Um, and we do have planets like that in our solar system. But we've also found planets that are super unique. So one type of planet that has been heavily studied um, in the past decades has been hot Jupiters. So those are Jupiter-sized planets, maybe a little smaller, maybe bigger. But they're really close to their star, and so they're really hot, versus our Jupiter, who, which is super far out and really cold. So something like a hot Jupiter, that doesn't exist in our system at all. There's a whole mix. There's planets that are like ones we see, and there are planets that are absolutely nothing like what we see. So it's it's fun to think about how unique we might be. Definitely. And it's very interesting because I've read on some systems that have 
like their nearest planet is 3 million kilometers, whereas like Mercury is like 55 million kilometers. And it's and it's just revolving around its star at such a insane speed, <laughs> like a few <laughs> days. It's yeah. oh, it's 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 fascinating uh, how variable the solar systems could be. It, and mm-hmm. we haven't even talked about like the possibility. Honestly, like it's very probable to have like a binary star system. And that's a whole different dynamic. Yeah, that's not uncommon. There are binary star systems and there are planets around them. So, yeah, that's that's not something that that's not something that we've never seen. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, just even the progression of Jupiter-like planets. From my understanding, it's more probabilistic to have a Jupiter move in inward towards a star over time rather than kind of like what Jupiter is doing in our solar system. And it's almost like it's being tugged by Saturn to stay away from from the inner circle. You know what I mean? I I don't know. It, it just seems like it's more probabilistic to have the other outcome than what we have going on in our solar system. Yeah, so hot Jupiters are um, a pretty small percentage of planets we found so far, but we have huge biases and detections and True. such. And so it's hard for us really to know uh, necessarily what the most common methods are yet. Um, and but but it's super interesting to think about. And as we discover more and more, we are beginning to complete those statistics a bit more. So that's true. Yeah, because the more data that we get, the more we'll understand how solar systems form <laughs> and what what things mean. It's a good point. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think we're going to jump into our first commercial break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk more about the recent developments in the exoplanet realm of, of planetary science. So stick around. Have you ever been standing in the shower, looking at the ingredients on your shampoo bottle and noticed that water is always the first ingredient? Well, I have. After a little research, I discovered that shampoo is over 80% water, which is kind of like dumping bottled water on your head while you're standing in a shower. And that's why I'm excited that I found Seabar, a disposable plastic free hair care line that cleans up ocean trash with every purchase. Not only does Seabar pick up one pound of ocean trash for every item ordered, but their salon quality shampoo and conditioner concentrates come from refillable applicators, kind of like deodorant tubes. Just twist them up, rub it on over your hair a couple times, and then just lather it up like you normally would. My favorite part is how long they last. I've personally been using the same C-Bar for three months now, and I've barely used any. So not only does it help save the environment, it's also effective, efficient, and most importantly, it saves me money. If you would like to try a better way to wash your hair, head on over to cbar.com and use our special code STEAM for 15% off your first order. C-Bar. Shampoo done right for you and the planet. We're back. This is segment two, and we're going to talk about the recent, we say recent, I mean, it's been only a couple decades of doing this, this sort of like gathering data for exoplanets, not about the theoretics, but about the applied portion of it. But we're going to talk about the recent developments, however that recent may be. And I guess I'll start out with the question of, why do we study the atmospheres of these exoplanets? Yeah, so when we're observing these planets, one of the big things that um, I and a lot of people care about and are looking for is their atmosphere specifically. And so we are 
thinking about what are their atmospheres made of, um, what sort of dynamics might be going on in them, are there clouds, are there currents? The kind of the big questions we're trying to answer are, one, how do planets form? So what a planet is made of today could be a product of its formation history, where it formed, how it migrated. And so using composition to inform formation uh, and then climate helps us understand ongoing processes in the atmosphere that can influence all sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. There's a wide variability of what is what is truly possible because, you know, it seems alien like to have different atmospheres that have different compositions, different atmospheric pressures, um, mm-hmm. different temperatures from both ends of the spectrum from hot to cold. It's quite fascinating what is out there. Yeah, if we all kind of remember maybe a chemistry class we took forever ago, uh, (laughs) there are different molecules that can exist at different temperatures and pressures. And so even a planet that may have similar atomic composition may have different molecules forming in its atmosphere depending on uh, the conditions. And so you really can end up with a with a wide range of possibilities. Yeah, definitely. And and even the dynamics of say like if a if a planet's like in how oh, what is what is it called whenever it's in a in a lock with like the star where you have like a hot and a cold side was that Yeah, so it's tidal locking. Yeah, tidal lock, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, there you go. So that's essentially when uh, the planet is maybe close to its star and the, the mass is strong, the gravity is strong, and so it actually prevents the planet from rotating. And so you have a permanent day side and a permanent night side. Very interesting. It makes a very, very interesting dynamic at the at the boundary of that hot and cold uh, transition. <laughs> it really does. It really does. So you can have a day side where there's no clouds, it's crazy hot, and then a night side that maybe has a bunch of clouds because it's way colder and you're getting molecules condensing out of the atmosphere at that transition point between day and night. That's really fascinating. So how are we studying these atmospheres? What are we using? So we're using a lot of these big telescopes, ground and space-based, but we look at them in a number of different ways. So I mentioned before the transit method which we can use to detect a dip in starlight, but um, we can separate out wavelengths and detect different depths. So different amount of light being blocked out at different wavelengths. And that could indicate an atmosphere. So if you think of it like holding up a piece of paper in front of a light bulb, some light will make it through and some light won't. And atmospheres are similar. Some light doesn't make it through the atmosphere and some does. And so if we split that up by wavelength, we can start to infer what the atmosphere might be made of based on what light gets blocked and what light doesn't. Mm. Um, so that's that's one way with the transit method. There's also eclipse, which is when a planet was just behind its star but emerges from behind its star. And in that case, you're looking at the day side of the planet. So you're, you can separate out the starlight and just extract the daylight of the planet. Um, and that's, that's another way that we can get light specifically from the planet as opposed to the star. 
Mm, and if you think about it on a time lapse, you can kind of figure out how fast things are moving within the atmosphere, like um, how fast those currents are, right? Um, so a lot of what we're thinking about is like, for example, you have a dayside temperature compared to a nightside temperature. So therefore, how much circulation must be occurring? Mm. Or you can look at the planet throughout its orbit. So you can look at the planet from full day side to partial day side to full night side and trying to get kind of all those angles of the planet and detect the light coming off of it helps us understand the temperatures and based on what molecules are present, you can start to think about how those molecules got there, what temperatures it requires. So, yeah. I'm curious, what are some examples and maybe some of your favorite examples of exoplanets? Oh boy. Um, well, <laughs> I'll give you the scientist answer because what I do is I create, I essentially create fake planets. I use code and I make a fake planet and I compare it to real ones, to data from real ones. Um, and based on how well my model does in comparison to the data, I can think about what that could mean for the planet. But so the scientist answer or the modeler answer is all my favorites are the ones that fit my models the best, <laughs> because those are the <laughs> ones that I feel like I might have a close handle on. Um, but planets that I think uh, a lot of people, especially outside of the exoplanet community, are especially interested in are planets like the TRAPPIST system. So for people who know nothing else about exoplanets, maybe they've heard of the TRAPPIST system. Um, that one's super interesting because it's actually a much cooler star. And so all the planets in that system are much closer to their star than they are um, in our solar system. But still, one to three of those planets are potentially within a reasonable temperature range to maybe have some similarities to Earth. That's just a really cool system because there's a lot of planets in it. We haven't observed that many systems where we can detect so many planets. Um, and it has smaller rocky planets, whereas a lot of exoplanets that we've spent a lot of time digging deep into are the large gassy planets, because those are the ones that are easier for us to observe yeah. because they're bigger and they have a larger <laughs> right. effect. So it's easier to get good data and to start to understand those ones. So yeah, people like the rocky planets. I think they're very cool, but <laughs> it'll take better data to be able to learn a whole lot about them. And then honestly, I do think the really big planets, though they may not have life on them like we think of it. I think they're really, really interesting because they have a really big gravitational impact on their planetary systems. So even if all we cared about are the little rocky ones, we need to understand the large ones to understand how mm. those systems work <laughs> at all, right? Yeah. And there's some super weird things that can happen in these atmospheres. Like you can get molecules existing that don't exist anywhere else. So I think that that is really cool. Um, in the era of JWST, I will say that the planets I'm most excited about are ocean world planets. We've spent a lot of time looking at large gas giants with Hubble, Spitzer, ground-based mm -hmm. telescopes, etc. Um, and we've we've started to get a little bit of a handle on them in, in some ways and some ways not. 
Um, but with JWST, with that bigger telescope, we'll be able to start to get better data on a slightly smaller population of ocean worlds. And I think that that will be really cool moving yeah. forward. Yeah, well, it's, it's very exciting. Um, it's kind of been like hinted at throughout the episode, especially now in this segment, because we've talked about the variance of, of stars, right? How um, important is the, the variance of stars to determining exoplanets between their size, brightness, et cetera? Just curious. Yeah, so we actually don't know a whole lot about that. Um, nice. But there are people who are definitely researching this. There are people who are really excited about the idea of M-dwarfs because maybe they could have more rocky, maybe Earth-like planets around them, but they're also super active because this is a class of star that is known for being particularly active. Mm. Um, and active stars may inhibit a habitable planet or a stable planet because mm -hmm. you're getting things like flares or sunspots or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, the star certainly has a huge effect, but I would say that that is, you know, that's something that we're still understanding is how important the star is for the eventual planets that form around them. Stemming off of that, wouldn't also the age or the progression of the system be important as well? Another, just another parameter that needs to be looked at. Yeah. As planetary systems evolve, they change. So you know, the the initial, the, the idea for how we think planets likely form is that when a star forms, you end up with this leftover material around the star called the protoplanetary disk. And then material within that disk over time essentially snowballs to form larger materials and you start to get planets. And so based on the stellar composition that affects what material is even available True. to form planets. Mm -hmm. So that's why understanding the composition of planets can tell us something about where it formed. And planets that form further away from their star, uh, maybe that material is colder. And so you have more ices, different materials are in solid and gas form. And so that affects what those planets are made of versus a planet that forms maybe closer to the star further in the disk and you have more gas form material. And then over time, those planets can migrate as well. And so you could have a planet that formed really far out in the super cold regions and then migrated further inwards and maybe did or didn't collect additional material as it was going in. And so that is a, it's a whole complex system of how these planets could form. And we're not entirely sure what the most common um, methods are yet. We're still trying to figure out how much we can really say about these formation pathways from exoplanet observations. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you think about it just on a real, I don't know, maybe a top-down view, it seems very chaotic, but there can be some parameters that we can pluck out and say, well, this happens in most cases, but then these parameters are extremely chaotic and it's just based on how how things collide, how things move, composition. The cool thing about studying the star, we can kind of understand the outcomes of the planets that rotate around them. Well, yep. Revolve around yep. them, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. No, I mean, understanding the star is a really key component to exoplanet research that... Um, mm -hmm. 
often isn't isn't talked about quite as much because you don't get the big headline of like oh we found an earth like rocky planet but definitely understanding the stars is a, is a super key component and there are a lot of planetary formation models you know for that maybe started from our solar system and ideas we had from our solar system that we can now try to apply to exoplanetary systems but yeah for people who are interested in planetary formation and maybe want to google something on their own time google the core accretion model because that is basically the leading idea for how planets form but still figuring out how we apply that to different systems and different contexts i'll make sure to throw a link somewhere so that people can can access that but i guess a couple more questions and then we'll roll into to break just because i'm sure some people are are curious one term that that gets thrown out a lot especially with our solar system um is the goldilocks zone and i just first of all i want to get your thoughts on that and then i don't know maybe how accurate that is how do you how do you feel about the goldilocks zone yeah, no, good question. People, when we talk about exoplanets, everyone wants to talk about aliens, talk about life, <laughs> um, and that is totally valid. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not in it for the aliens, but I do think the aliens are cool, and I do care a lot about what exoplanets can tell us about how unique our planet is. So mm-hmm. totally valid to ask about aliens and the Goldilocks zone, sometimes also referred to as the habitable zone, Yeah, but... The idea is that there is a region, there's an area of radii around a star in which the temperatures are just right to be able to have liquid water on the surface, um, which we're pretty sure is required for life on Earth. But there are a lot of variables that go into that that are (laughs) really (laughs) complex to understand, right? I mean, one, there can be life that exists that's not like ours. There could be planets with and without atmospheres are going to have different temperatures on their surface. You know, you look at Mars, its radius is not super indifferent to Earth's, but it's lost a lot of its atmosphere. So the temperature on the surface is super different. Mm -hmm. And Venus has this crazy thick atmosphere. Um, And so (laughs) we know that the, the atmosphere of the planet has a huge impact on things as well. You can also think about potential life or building blocks of life um, on things like ocean worlds, which are in the outer solar system, which are certainly not within a habitable zone of our system. (laughs) Yeah. But there are still people who think, oh, we could maybe look for building blocks of life in those areas. So I think that thinking about what the habitable zone could be is definitely a worthwhile question, but it is far more complex than at these radii you're going to have a planet that has an ocean and is like earth and you'll find life there like that's it's not that simple um but Mm -mm. it is a worthwhile question to think about what is required for life most definitely because i mean earth our evidence has suggested is that life started in the ocean or in water sorry just in water around Mm -hmm. hydrothermal vents and it doesn't have to be that way um Mm -hmm. and there's life underneath the oceans in the craziest of of environments environments, right you know and i mean we have we have stuff that lives in geysers you know just beneath the earth's surface you know in the atmosphere in the oceans all over the place and in, in the most extreme environments environments 
What I like to say is that we have one data point. We have Earth, <laughs> and we yeah. know that there's life here. <laughs> yep. But we don't really know what that means for anywhere else. You know, with one data point, we don't know how unique we are. We don't know really anything. So, um, yeah, I think that, you know, we know that life is possible on a planet like Earth. So if we wanted to look for life, looking for other planets like Earth makes sense. That's a way to narrow down our search. But I, I don't think that it is reasonable to assume that with our one data point, we know what all life must look like, and we know where to look at all times. With hundreds of billions of stars, I mean, it just, <laughs> the probabilities aren't aligning there. <laughs> but, and, um, even, and even if we did find a planet that had life, an exoplanet with life, you know, at this stage, how would we confirm that? I don't think we could, really. I mean, we can look for what people call biosignatures that maybe mm. we think could be produced by life. But we can't go there. We can't confirm it. We don't know that it's not some geological process that's causing a biosignature. And so, yeah, searching for life, super worthwhile endeavor, um, fascinating thing to think about. But realistically, I think the part that I'm especially interested in is just understanding the complexities of systems around the galaxy and understanding how unique our system is and using that to maybe extrapolate to what else could there be out there. Yeah. There's different ways that people use for motivation in these studies mm -hmm. for sure. Um, additionally, I, I guess I just want to quickly explain biosignatures before we, we wrap up the segment because we name dropped it, but didn't really say like what they are or what they could be. And you can expand on this. But for the example of Earth, a great biosignature for Earth is the amount of oxygen in our atmosphere because it's obviously based on photosynthesis and, and the balance of, of respiration that shows a good biosignature. The interesting thing about that is if you were to look at Earth like 600 million years ago, you wouldn't have had even a percent of the amount that we have today. I mean, we have 20%. And it took three and a half billion years until we could actually get not even 1% of oxygen. Today, we have 20%. So measuring oxygen is a good one. Measuring methane is a good one. Carbon dioxide, stuff like that. And maybe, Lindsay, you can weigh in on that as well. Yeah, I mean, so there are a lot of different hypotheses about what would we look for? What has the highest probability of being life and not something else? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but these are really hard questions because there are, of course, yeah. probably processes that we haven't thought of that could be happening. And, yeah. you know, we see things like CO2 and methane and exoplanet atmospheres. That's not those are things that we could expect to see on planets that maybe are way too hot or not in the True. right region or whatever for life. And so mm -hmm. these molecules have ways of existing without it being life. And so thinking about that probability is definitely interesting. Yeah. You won't know until you really show up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. All these are fun thought experiments. I think yeah. my favorite, you know, something that I've been thinking a lot about, which I hinted at was we actually have no like consensus on what life is. We don't even know. Like, like there's no definition for life. No one's agreed on whether or not a virus counts as life. That's example. true. Um, and so 
when we're searching for life, it's absolutely hilarious to me that like we don't know what it is, one. And because we don't know what it is, we don't know what it requires, two. <laughs> and because we don't know what it requires, we don't know what to look for, <laughs> three. And then even if we did find it, because we've never answered the first three questions, everyone would disagree on whether or not we found it. Like, That's even fair. if we found life on an exoplanet, I'm sure that there will be tons of people in the community arguing that, oh, it could just be a volcano that spewed chemicals into the atmosphere. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's just, that's it's, true. I mean, that's, that's a good thing about science. Like, I mean, you want people to poke holes in your, um, mm-hmm. in your hypotheses. So yeah. I totally get that. But then that also stops the progression of, of, I guess, declaring whether it is life or not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, yeah. I get that. A lot of people like to talk about the whole carbon versus silicon-based life, but the evidence of silicon versus carbon is hard to prove because while they are quite similar on the periodic table, they behave differently in environments. Silicon-based uh, molecules look like the same as, as carbon-based molecules will will dissolve in water. And mm-hmm. if we think you know, life is more probabilistic to start around hydrothermal vents and water. Yeah, <laughs> that's not that's not going to work. So is it more yeah. likely it, for it to be a different composition or atmospheric life or terrestrial life that doesn't have mm-hmm. water? I don't know. Yeah. How do you determine did you, that? Did you hear about all the like Venus phosphine craziness earlier the, in the year? The Venus phosphine? No. So a group of scientists found traces of phosphine in the venus atmosphere and they couldn't think of any possible geological anything that would have created it and so they basically declared like the only way that we can think of that this phosphine would exist is that it's the byproduct of life that exists and within like a week people reanalyzed the data and showed that this phosphine spectral feature was like absolutely tiny and probably not there and like (laughs) so quickly almost the entire community was like one we cannot confirm there's phosphine but even if there is there are geological things that can make it like it's such a small Mm. amount that it's not like you can't show that it's consistent consistently there even so (laughs) it was just this huge debacle where they because it was supposed to be like a big announcement, they had a whole event. There was like this big press release. It was absolutely huge. It was like all over the news. And then just almost immediately, all the scientists read it and they were like, this is, no, you, you didn't know. This is not, you did not find phosphine. And even if you did. Yeah, um, that's definitely why you need uh, consensus. Yeah, but it's super interesting because there are still a handful of scientists in that original research team will stand by it till the day that they die, that there is phosphine and there was probably life on Venus or something. Hmm. And then there's plenty of people in the group who have come out and said, like, no, we acknowledge we saw the reanalysis of the data and we now agree that it's not a conclusive <laughs> result. So it was super fascinating case study and <laughs> the scientific process and <laughs> human consensus (laughs) (laughs) but yeah okay so i think that's enough um we don't want to talk anymore about aliens (laughs) so (laughs) uh when we come back we're going to talk about space policy and outreach so stick around
Are you an athlete who is constantly on the grind? Maybe you're a student who's cramming for an 8 a.m. exam the next day. Or maybe you're someone who's crushing a hike and you have three peaks to go. Well, you've come to the right ad. Sigma snacks are a healthy alternative to pre-workout and energy drinks. These snacks deliver easily digestible sugars and carbs necessary to crush an early morning workout, late night study sesh, or any adventure in between. By combining caffeine and the amino acid L-theanine, these bars are backed by scientific research to provide clean energy, extra focus, and reduce the anxiety and crash that are associated with normal pre-workout and junk energy drinks. Not to mention, they taste great. Specifically, I have been taking them with me on my backpacking adventures. They're a great way to start the day without having any jitters or an upset stomach on the trail. Lastly, Sigma Snacks is a student-run, student-operated startup that would like to offer you 15% off your first purchase with the promo code STEAM. So head on over to EatSigmaSnacks.com and order your first Sigma Snack today to have the best and most reliable source of energy shipped right to your door. That's EatSigmaSnacks.com, promo code STEAM for energy that's out of this world. This is the last segment for the Exoplanet episode. Uh, we're going to talk about space policy and outreach. So a lot of people in the science community understand the answer to, I'm sure, the question that I'm about to pose. Lindsay, why why do we study space? <laughs> it's, it seems so like... Uh, it's so weird to ask that question, but for some reason, we still have a lovely budget debate in terms of space science. So please tell me why why we study space. Yeah, I think there are a lot of different reasons for why people study space. So I certainly cannot speak for everybody, but there are a number of reasons that I've kind of tossed around <laughs> throughout <laughs> my life for why why I do this and why I love it. The first answer that I had was, to me, it's just, we live on one planet, and that planet is super valuable. You know, there's not a planet B, we need to protect it. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's a whole universe out there. And to me, it was just, I didn't learn about space that much in school. You know, I maybe learned (laughs) what the planets were, but beyond that, there wasn't a whole lot. And so I just thought, like, the whole universe is out there. We got to be trying to understand that. And I think understanding space or studying space really helps put our own planet into perspective. It helps us realize how unique our planet is. I'm looking at exoplanets all day where, you know, it's 200 degrees Kelvin (laughs) compared to our planet. And so I think it really puts into perspective, like, how unique and special our planet is. And I also think that it's a really cool community of people who have dedicated themselves to researching space. There are a lot of issues and topics and things uh, in the U.S. especially that have become especially partisan. And space is one of those areas where there is bipartisan support for exploring space. And there are people who maybe disagree on almost everything but can (laughs) talk about space and get excited about the science or some aspect of it. So I I think that space has the powerful potential for putting people in the same room and initiating conversations that maybe wouldn't have happened. And then, of course, there's the classic answer that a lot of scientists will give, which is space inspires the young generation. There's pretty pictures. Children can look at a picture and get excited about science or 
art or whatever, whatever mm-hmm. it is that they're inspired to do. So I think that's an answer as well. But above all else, I think it's interesting. There are enough people in this world that find it interesting that it's worthwhile to keep doing. Definitely. Additionally, knowing and understanding other things in the cosmos, we can better understand how to take care of or respect our own planet. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, there are so many stories, right, of astronauts who went to space, saw Earth from space and realized how special yeah. it was and came back and declared themselves environmentalists. So, yeah, there, <laughs> there are a ton of those. There are a ton of those cheesy stories out there as well. Yeah, it's cheesy, but it's also legit. I mean, whenever the Apollo missions, you know, whenever they went up into space and some of the first photographs of the Earth inspired the birth of the EPA in 1970, just one year after that. I mean, it has profound effects. Uh, additionally, I mean, the more cutesy philosophical thing that you could say is that we are a way for the universe to know itself. So it's almost intrinsic that we are curious about what goes on on this planet and outside of this planet. That is a fun philosophical route that um, quite a few people have taken as well. You know, we're part of the universe and we're that part of the universe that is able to discover the universe. So, yeah, that is that is a fun philosophical discussion, too. Absolutely. Yeah. So. Okay, how does space studying space benefit us maybe not only on a philosophical manner, but anthropologically? How do you think that it benefits us like us humans outside of just understanding or, or knowing something? Um, I'm not sure I have a great answer to that. I think that one of the things that we're doing as humans is building our understanding of the universe, and that's enough right i mean i think that i think that it's enough to be curious and to explore science and try to understand it uh, there are certainly aspects of the space community that are thinking about you know whether or not we could colonize mars and expand <laughs> outwards and all that kind of stuff um but i'm not in space for that i don't think that it makes sense to colonize mars i think if anything it makes sense to fix our own planet <laughs> and and uh, yeah. keep Mars for the science for now. When we first started this podcast, we had like a, uh, it was a joke like at first, because like obviously the word colonization is bad, right? So mm-hmm. we said Mars colonization, good or waste? And we just like debated my take out of that, you know, because from the engineering perspective, like it's exciting, right? And there's new mm-hmm. innovation that comes out of it. But the more that I looked into an understanding Mars, the more I was like, yo, you you couldn't pay me to be there. I, I love this planet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and you're right. I should not have said colonize Mars. I should have said settle mm-hmm. because, yes, that's definitely a valid point. We also are looking at, like, expanding to the moon and stuff like that. It has its merit, um, I think so, but it also puts humans at, at risk, at great risk. Um, mm-hmm. Radiation, different things like that that, that come up uh, – not even just, I mean, just even factoring in gra- gravity, gravitational yeah. effects on how humans have evolved to be on Earth and used to our atmospheric pressure. And mm-hmm. it's it's just a, a whole different ballgame when you yeah. get into that. That's why, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And I was going to say, you know, and if we bring it back to our planet, 
right? I mean, space has huge benefits for people when we're talking about satellites and orbit mm -hmm. and uh, communication, imaging, mm -hmm. all sorts of things that we can do from space that just we haven't done from, with just Earth alone, right? Like we need satellites for all sorts of things like GPS and communication. And so um, that is one thing that I think is maybe often overlooked is how critical space and satellites are for everyday life. Definitely. Um, I do joke that like the person who figures out how to appropriately clear space junk <laughs> is going to be the next, <laughs> the, 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 they'll be a billionaire because there's mm -hmm. a lot of space junk going on up there. Um, but yeah. Okay. So I know we're talking, we, we've, we talked a little bit about policy and we're not getting political. We just want to talk about policy here. So I know that you do some work in policy. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what you're working on? Yeah, like you said, I, I you know, we're not here to really talk about political things. We're here to talk mm -hmm. about exoplanets. Um, but I do think that it is, um, space policy is a really interesting area that is being developed and needs to be developed because activity in space is still relatively young. And there are a lot of unknowns about what laws and policies apply. And so I would encourage people to explore it a bit more. I do a couple things. One is I help lead the U.S. Task Force, which is part of the Space Generation Advisory Council, SGAC. And they have this policy and advocacy platform. So we're part of that. Essentially, what we do is try to amplify the perspective of young people in the space industry, amplify their perspectives on space policy and help to encourage changes or developments. And so that's mm. one group that I work with that I think is super awesome. And SJC as a whole is really awesome um, and worth looking up. Um, and then I also work a little bit on the side of my PhD. I work a little bit at ASU on international space governance and how do we reach an international system of laws and agreements for this ever evolving <laughs> yeah. area? So. Yeah, that's a good point that um, it is obviously international. It takes a lot of a lot of collaboration. And that's why I have, you know, heaps of respect for the space community, because mm -hmm. I mean, there has to be that collaboration, like in, and, and honestly, yeah. like with these space agencies and stuff like that, even just through, um, you know, studies and research, it, it's just mm -hmm. amazing. And it, it's, it's wonderful to see people of all different backgrounds working together to solve problems. It's, it's, and yeah. you don't really see that in That's other fields. Well, that's one thing I love about space is it's not in borders, yeah. right? I mean, if you have a satellite in space, it is orbiting and it's crossing over all sorts of countries and the satellite doesn't see that. The satellite sees I am falling in space around this rock. So <laughs> <laughs> I think it's obviously going to need to be an international effort to understand the rules that apply. And that's one of my favorite things about working in space and um, working on missions like JWST that are international collaborations. You know, I'm working yeah. with scientists around the world to answer the questions that I'm thinking about. So that is a really exciting aspect. Yeah, definitely. Now, I just 
just kind of out of curiosity, because you said that you're working in, in governance and international governance. So how are we keeping that collaboration together to where, for example, with like the moon, right? We want to establish more footholds there. How do you keep things in balance? That's a really good question. Uh, and it's a question that we still don't really know the answer to, right? <laughs> I mean, like the, the, the rules are so minimal at this point. Um, mm-hmm. So there are international treaties and agreements in play. You know, there's the International Space, sorry, the Outer Space Treaty, uh, which sets kind of some very basic ground rules uh, in space. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are other international agreements, but Countries can choose to sign or not sign them and things like private activity. So currently at the international level, uh, private companies, uh, they still have to be registered with a country. So um, when it comes to the Outer Space Treaty or whatever, you know, they're they're registered with a country and that country is responsible for what they're doing. So private companies, you know, they still are (laughs) within a country to some extent. But, you know, we we didn't account for private space companies in the beginning because they didn't really exist until mm-hmm. relatively recently. So all of these laws and rules are still in their infancy. Um, and creating international agreements is really, really hard. So maybe that's not necessarily the like best way to go about it, at least at the beginning. Who knows? These are just questions that, you know, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about in my spare time and my volunteer work so oh yeah definitely because with all the you know fancy headlines and stuff of said country or said organization wanting to place footholds on the moon it's very interesting to see how that's gonna play out especially with what you're saying with everything's kind of in its in its infancy i mean even the developments of those um tactics are in its infancy but very interesting how that's going to work. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah. um, I, I I mean, this might not be true. I don't know. Maybe I'll just ask you. Uh, I've heard that like China was heavily involved, heavily interested in going to the moon for like mining purposes. There's some form of fuel in which is only not only but like heavily available on the moon compared to what it is on Earth or at least without having to deal with a bunch of international treaties. So something like that is quite yeah, interesting. Yeah, so I'm not a moon person, but the moon is essentially, I mean, the moon is a rock. <laughs> the moon doesn't have a whole lot of really interesting stuff that we don't mm. have on Earth. But there are ideas that we could go and use the ice on the moon to create fuel to then be able to go further out into the solar system mm, okay um because it would be easier to launch off of the moon than it would off or to refuel the moon than it would be to just take a bunch of fuel from earth of course yeah that's i think the idea behind that and this is something that the u.s is exploring too right this is not just trying to everybody's thinking about this the u.s oh, yeah. is thinking about this um I mean, you know how it goes over resources throughout human history. <laughs> you know, that's why I ask. Yeah, of course. Um, it's an interesting topic, but I'm I'm not sure that resources on the moon are necessarily going to be the right way forward. But it is certainly something that we will have to address either way because people want to do it. People want to try it. For sure. I mean, there are bunches of resources and things that we could do here on Earth that we are exploiting, but it's just... Interests are always on a spectrum. They're never, you know, in a singularity or a binary. 
So I get that. But um, I guess maybe to move forward out of um, out of policy, because I know we want to talk about outreach. So like how can uh, someone engage with the overall space community, the space world? Yeah, so I, I mentioned SGAC. I think that that's mm-hmm. one really great organization to get involved for even people who aren't necessarily in the space world right now. There are things like SEDS, which is Students for the Exploration and Development of Space, which is another organization that exists. Um, I mean, going to observatories, mm-hmm. looking at telescopes, looking at planetarium shows, like there are yeah. so many really cool ways to learn more about it i mean even just like googling for a bit on wikipedia um, <laughs> is always is always interesting uh, mm-hmm. and then reach out with questions walk up to somebody who spoke at a planetarium show and ask them about what they do i think that at, at least in my experience everybody who's working in the space world almost everyone would be happy to answer some questions from somebody who's trying to learn more about it so i can yeah. attest to that definitely and just um the visits to the observatories definitely help um helps with mm-hmm. funding but also helps people stay curious so that you can make informed decisions on on you know someone said policy <laughs> that helps out with the budget <laughs> but mm-hmm. yeah that's uh, it's good um it's a it's a wonderful community uh, to to be involved in, so definitely recommend you know if you're watching or listening to 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 get involved, spike that curiosity. Yeah, highly sp- encourage it. Space is fun. There's so many things to think about. It's the whole universe. You'll never run out of ideas. That's true. <laughs> well, Lindsay, uh, I'm I'm very happy that you were able to join the podcast, and um, I just just want to say thanks a bunch. This has been fun learning about exoplanets policy outreach all the good stuff. Uh, Thank you so much. Yeah, happy to do it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Take care. That is all for this episode of Everything Steam. I just wanted to take a quick second and thank Lindsay once again for taking the time to share her knowledge on exoplanets and space policy. I would also love to mention my amazing team for their collective efforts to make this show happen. This podcast was edited by Ariel Piermont, marketed by Courtney Page, QC by Panya Pit Erickson, and our episode art was created by Gabrielle Edmiston. After the episode, as usual, please give our podcast a rating and review on whatever platform you get your podcasts on. We are always looking for feedback, and the rating would greatly help us out in the fight against those algorithms. Lastly, be sure to check us out on all the socials for podcast news, upcoming episodes, and fun Steam content. Just search Everything Steam on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Reddit to join in on the fun. Once again, thank you for listening to Everything Steam. I'm your host, Sam Stanford, and as always, stay curious. Everything Steam would like to give a shout out to Anchor by Spotify for sponsoring our podcast along with Ben's Sound Music for providing our show with intro, outro, and advertising background rhythm.